have a Bible, please join me in the Old Testament narrative book of Ruth, chapter 1, as we continue our series, Behind the Scenes with God. I think I know why Pastor Pat asked me to preach this text, because it's all about family salvation, and I'm the family pastor here at Sadaville, and he also knows that I have great love for my own personal family and a great appreciation for my parental family in helping to lead me to faith in Christ. So today, I want to address my remarks to those of you who have grown up in the church, who've grown up in Christian homes. Is that you? This message is for you. If I were to give a simple description of the passage in front of us, I would describe it this way. Naomi goes home, and she takes Ruth with her. When I go home, I want to take family members with me, too. Are you with me? Amen. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. And the next words are West Virginia. Mountain mama, take me home, country roads. We don't sing a whole lot about mountain mamas in Iowa. More about flatland farms. But you know, John Denver's famous song still resonates deep in my soul and brings me down memory lane to take me back to the place I belong, that family farm in northwest Iowa. Those kind of memories, to be honest with you, are what prompted me a year ago about right now to write a little book for my family and my extended family about my farm life, but more importantly, about my relationship with Jesus Christ. I wanted to leave a spiritual legacy, so I wrote a book called Life Lessons from the Family Farm. When you think about home, whether it's on the farm or someplace else, it often brings happy, positive thoughts and emotions. You know, we think about love and joy and peace, and we we think about affirmation, encouragement, support. It's a place of safety in the storms of life, or not, because some of you associate pain with family, and that was the case with Naomi. For the Jewish family, home was synonymous with Israel the promised land. And for the biblical character, Naomi, it was identified with the little town of Bethlehem. For far too long, she'd lived in a foreign land, a nation called Moab. Though close in proximity and juxtaposition to Israel, just across the Dead Sea, it was still a world away from home, only 60 miles removed. The journey took more than a week and the terrain was rugged and steep. You can see that topographical map, the mountain ranges. They would have had to descend out of Moab into the Jordan River Valley, about 4,500 feet down, and then back up nearly that amount to get to Bethlehem. That rigorous trip, I think, provides a fitting metaphor for Naomi's challenges of life. Moab wasn't home. It was a land of foreign people, ancestors of Lot, from his ancestral relationship with his oldest daughter. It was a land of foreign gods, in particular Chemosh, who was known to demand sacrifice of human beings on his altars. Naomi was a refugee, a displaced person. But finally, Naomi was going home. But her home going was anything but joyful. She'd lost her beloved husband, Elimelech, 
during the 10-year journey over there in residency, she'd lost her only two children, her sons. She was now bereft of provision and protection by the males in her family. And to be honest, she felt as if the Lord had forsaken her. Anybody here feel like that? God's at work. Early last month, Tim Challies, a well-known Canadian pastor, author, and blogger, wrote a touching birthday note to his son on his 21st birthday. Here's a picture of the Challies family. His son, Nick, is the one to the far left. What you may not know is that this young man was a student at Boyce College, a ministry college in Louisville, Kentucky. Got a couple of our own students there. He was studying for ministry, but just four months before his dad wrote this birthday note to his son, Nick suddenly and mysteriously died for no apparent reason. The family was devastated. Yet Tim wrote this birthday note as if his son was still there, and I have to imagine he was picturing him up in heaven when he wrote these words. I can't read you the entire note. It's powerful. It's emotional. I can only read you the last paragraph. Here it is. Oh, my Nick, I miss you so much. It has been 203 days since I hugged you goodbye, 124 days since I spoke with you, 122 days since you went to heaven. It all feels so long and yet so short. And I expect the same will be true of the time that elapses between today and that day we're back together. The sage, that is the writer of Scripture, says that life is a vapor, a breath, a puff, a whisper. I'm more mindful of that than ever, that each day is precious. Each day is a gift to be used for the good of others and the glory of God. So I prayerfully discern each day's duty, and then I carry it out the best I can. And then when night comes, I fall asleep thinking, when I wake up, I'll be one day closer to Nick. And if I don't wake up, I'll finally be at home with Nick. And to be honest, I'm okay either way. I'll see you soon, my sweet boy. Love, Dad. Why do I read that? Because it gives you a sense for the hole that must have been in Naomi's heart, losing her only two boys as well as her husband. But at least her two daughters-in-law began the journey back home with her. The problem was Bethlehem and the God of Israel were not home to these girls. They were from Moab. They were pagans. Even though they'd married into this Israeli family, they had never converted to the one true God that we know in Scripture as Yahweh, the Lord. They'd never been saved. We're going to read the story now, beginning in verse 6. You can join me in your Bibles or on the screen. Verse 6. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi protested, No, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Watch this next phrase. This is the statement of faith of Ruth. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Why don't you go with her? But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And I love these next words. I'll come back later to describe them. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. In this storyline, three women teach us that at the intersection of faith and family, we often find a place of divided decisions. Let me apply that to you and to me. Let me give you three insights about our own faith and our own families, and, and here is the first. Number one, genuine faith is not the same as emotional love for your family. Let that sink in. You'll note that Orpah loved her mother-in-law. She went part of the way on the journey to Bethlehem. It says so twice in verses 9 and 14 that she openly wept in affection for her mother-in-law. But her emotion did not lead to her conversion. Now stay with me. Watch this. Tears do not necessarily constitute genuine repentance. Hmm. Just because someone cries doesn't mean they got saved. One's love for family does not automatically equate with salvation. You don't go to heaven because you love believing parents. You go to heaven because in saving faith, you love the Lord. There's a difference. In Hebrews 12, we read about Esau, who wept over the loss of his birthright for his family. He wanted it back so desperately, but his tears did him no good because they lacked repentance. If you look at the text, apparently, his immorality so hardened his heart, he could only be sorry for what he had lost, but he could not find it within himself to turn to the Lord. Have you ever met someone like that? Back to Orpah, the sympathy and sorrow is a strong bonding agent. These ladies all experiencing this same bereavement and succession. Three times they walked the same road of suffering, but they did not all walk the same road to salvation. How far down the road to Bethlehem Orpah went, I do not know, but eventually she turned back to her unsaved family like Lot's wife centuries before. And for some of you who are listening to me here today, following Jesus means that you will have to decide between choosing Christ and choosing family who turn their back on Christ or the biblical plan of salvation, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus warned, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother 
and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Christ must always be our greatest and our premier love. Again, I say to you that genuine faith is not the same as emotional love for your family. But that's not to say God doesn't use our family in a salvation context. And that brings me to my second point, my second insight. The Lord uses godly family love to influence us for Christ. Now, by point of order, understand that theologically, no one comes to Christ except God is always previous. God always takes initiative. Finish this sentence for me. We only love him because he first loved us. God is the cause of our salvation. But listen to me, play on words here. The means, not the cause, the means that he uses to draw many to Christ often includes believing families. How does he use them? He uses them through, through family love, through family testimonies, through family prayers. It's why, as God is my witness now for years, I prayed every morning for all of my grandchildren by name. The 12th, I don't know by name yet because he's still to be born this summer. I pray for them by name. I pray that they'll come to faith in Christ. Several have, but most of them are littles, have not yet. And I actually pray for the ones they will marry because who you marry makes all the difference. You can get derailed in life very quickly if you don't marry in the Lord. Now, I admit that Naomi is something of a conundrum in our text. On one hand, she struggled with bitterness. She struggled with giving some bad advice to her daughters-in-law. But on the other hand, Naomi had such a loving impact on her daughters-in-law that they could not quickly shake their relationship with her or her vital relationship with the Lord. Yes, Naomi was a broken person. But to put it artistically, broken crayons still color. Are you broken? I am. It's the only kind of people God uses. I think that color, that generosity of spirit, is captured in a phrase in verse 8 where she said, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. That word kindly means loyal love. Chesed in the Hebrew. It's a very key word. We, we translate it in the ESV, steadfast love. He gives it to all who embrace his son Jesus by faith. You are loved forever. And I think it corresponds with the New Testament doctrine of grace. Now stay with me. God will show you his loyal love and save you forever if you will leave off of self-trust and instead turn to Christ's trust alone. It's not your rights, your rituals, your works. It's by grace that you're saved. You must believe that Christ took your place on the cross to pay for your sins, that he rose again. And there must be a point in time when you invite him into your life. And he saves you by grace. Remember this. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Can I hear an amen? amen. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift to the guilty. Thank God. For his grace. In the book of Ruth, in the end, we're reminded that God keeps his promises of providing for us a redeemer. 
And for Ruth, Naomi was that family member that God used to draw her. A word to the parents here this morning, grandparents, great-grandparents. Have you ever given your personal testimony to all of your family members, shared how you came to faith in Christ? It's a very powerful tool. I want to urge you to do that. If there is a human testimony most responsible for my coming to faith in Christ, it would have to be my father on the family farm. Whenever I took those Iowa country roads back to the northwest corner of our state, I always arrived at a farm located six miles south of Rock Valley. I'll show you a picture here of our farm, at least a part of it, the place of our family spiritual heritage where it began, pilgrimage. This only shows two out of the three farmsteads that were located on our farm. This was our Bethlehem, our house of bread. It's, it's no longer in the family. But within your view in this picture between the farmsteads is a place out in the cornfield. One day, Dad, after hearing the gospel out in Idaho uh, from my uncle had gotten saved, he, he came under heavy conviction on his tractor, on his cultivator. He shut her down. He dismounted. He knelt in the cornfield. He repented of his sin. He cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he believed the gospel, Amen. turning from his sin and embracing Jesus Christ. And his life was transformed, and everybody could see it. As a result of that, I turned to Christ when I was in late grade school. I loved my dad. He's been in heaven 14 years now. He'd be 99 next month if he still were alive. I can close my eyes and I can stand with Dad out in the field where we memorize Scripture together while we put up fence. I, I remember memorizing and then discussing Scripture together as we did chores in the barns. I, I remember listening to Bible messages on the radio in the milk barn while we milked cows. Dad gravitated to the Word. He couldn't get enough of the Word. He loved the Word. I have a picture of Dad during the dinner hour. That's what we call the noon meal on the farm. A big meal, and he'd always pull out the Bible, and he'd pull out a devotional, and he'd read God's Word, and he'd instruct us in the things of God. I love standing next to Dad in a place like this in church, and I'd look up at his face as he sang. And Dad, he wasn't a great singer, but man, he let her rip. He sang joyfully, happily, cheerfully, fervently, with a smile on his face, the great hymns of the faith, as if to say, family, watch this. This is how we worship the Lord together from the heart. I learned from that. But I have to confess, best of all, I think, best of all, I love playing catch with my dad between chores. My daughter, uh, Jen, is sitting down here, and uh, her family attends our church, and she's a great artist, and she put together this, this little shadow box of dad, star athlete of the class of 1941, Rock Valley High School. That's his catcher's mat right there, and his letters, the memorabilia. I think this is why I love the movie Field of Dreams so much. We've been to that Dyersville location twice, including just this last fall on our way over to Galena. Uh, at the end of the movie, most of you have seen it, 
Ray Kinsella plays catch with his long-deceased and long-estranged father, John. But just before doing so, his dad asked him a question. Remember that question? Is this heaven? And what was the reply? No, <laughs> no it's Iowa. Now, I realize the two are often confused. <laughs> But that scene always touches me so deeply as father and son are playing catch because it reminds me of my baseball connection with dad. I played on the same diamond that he played on in Rock Valley 30 years after the fact. But you know, the real field of dreams is up there in heaven, and I'm going to play with them again with all the rest of my family who's gone on before. And that's the hope I have because of Christ. Kids, I have to ask you, do you have that assurance? Do you know that you'll go to heaven with dad and mom and grandpa and grandma? Have you made sure, if not today's your day, to trust in Christ? God uses family to influence us for Christ. A third insight from our text about faith and family. Family commitment is a picture of salvation commitment. It's a picture, an illustration. I think there's a kind of easy believism extant abroad in the evangelical church today. I would call it cultural Christianity. It's not genuine. It's only superficial. It's devoid of repentance, devoid of self-denial, devoid of life change. It's only a get-out-of-hell free card for those who are playing a game of spiritual monopoly. We have four kids, um, mentioned my oldest daughter here and her family, there are three children. Uh, four kids, all of them passionately love the Lord, thank Jesus, that's an act of grace, it's in spite of us instead of because of us, that's always the case, but one of my sons, my, my oldest son, a second born, he, he's a veterinarian down in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area, a place that would typically be called the, the Bible Belt, although to be honest with you, I don't think there are any Bible Belts anymore in America. But because of his business connections, small animal clinic, he keeps in touch with hundreds of North Carolinians. And to be honest with them, he says, Dad, I engage them. He, he loves the Lord. He, he, he's a sweet, gracious guy who wants to talk to people about Christ. And he said, Dad, many of the people who come here go to evangelical churches. Many of them, quite frankly, are Baptist by label. But then he, he gets so burdened, he says, but Dad... There's no difference between many of these professed believers and everybody else. There's fruit of repentance in their lives. They go to church, but they're devoid of gospel reality. In my estimation, I think that's increasingly true across America. So what does biblical conversion really look like? I believe that Ruth's Pledge to Naomi as a great illustration of what it looks like, verses 16 and 17. Now, let me explain. Hebrews in their poetry did not use rhyme like we do today, they used parallelism of thought. And, and Ruth expresses that here. All the ancients in the Middle East would, would write poetry like this. This is really a song from, from Ruth to Naomi. She used three couplets to express her commitment, and I would want you to consider them as commitment equations. Follow me here. Look at the math on the screen, parallelism. 
This is Ruth to Naomi, and this is an illustration of the believer to Christ. She said to Naomi, wherever you go, that's where I'm going to go. Wherever you live, that's where I'm going to live. And what's the equation? It means I will follow you and your people forever. Christians are known as Christ followers. In the first century, there were all kinds of rabbis who had their little tribe. The Lord Jesus, of course, the Son of God, the ultimate rabbi, the only true Son of God. He had his disciples. But they would say in a complimentary way of those who were really committed that they walked in the dust of their rabbi. So closely would they follow them and be committed to them that there was no question that they were right there with them all the time. Second couplet, your people will be my people, your God. That's Yahweh, New Testament. Of course, the Lord Jesus likens himself to the great I am. He is I am. Your God will be my God, and what's the equation? I will fellowship with you and your people forever. And then finally, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I will finish with you and your people forever. Genuine biblical salvation is lifelong. It continues throughout your life. If along the way you jettison the faith, you walk away and you never return, it likely means you were never born again in the first place. Saving faith is enduring faith. We are not of those that shrink back, but of those that believe to the saving of the soul, Hebrews 10, verse 39. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. You will continue on if you genuinely know Christ, even through suffering. No matter how hard it gets, you follow Jesus. He's your everything. I use these words in my message challenge to my daughter, Julia and her husband, Rich Rudolph, it'd be like 14 years ago, this coming May the 19th, my dad's birthday. Uh, Ken Rudolph and I, some of you know Ken Rudolph from Lake Ann. Uh, his, his youngest son married our youngest daughter, Julia. And uh, we had some fun helping to co-officiate. My family here was, was there. It started off the ceremony, and then I came up to give the charge, and we high-fived as we crossed the platform. This is... Uh, Heritage Baptist Church in Clark Summit, where the Jacksons used to serve. It, it, was, it was a blast. And I said, I know what some of you are thinking. Two pastor daddies, how long is this ceremony going to take? <laughs> <laughs> but Julia's middle name is Ruth. So I chose this text to challenge them as a couple. And I said, in effect, Jules, when a woman marries, she surrenders. She leaves and she cleaves. She leaves her name, she leaves her home, she leaves her parents, she leaves her personal aspirations, all to the man to whom she cleaves. And in the end, she dies where he dies. And for Julia, that meant that she literally walked away from her home country of America to join him as a missionary in Germany now for many years, thanks to Stadiaville Church for helping to support them. Here's the parallel. The true Christian leaves behind this world. The true Christian identifies with those born again, those who become the children of God by faith in Christ, and they go to the cross to die to self and commit to never leaving their new identity until God calls them home. I'm curious, have you made that kind of commitment to Christ? 
Biblical Christianity is radical. It swims against the culture. It's not only counterintuitive, it's countercultural. It marches to a different drumbeat. You're going to be considered odd, weird, crazy if you radically follow Jesus Christ, but that's the Christianity of the Bible. I enjoyed lots of family reunions when I was a boy on the farm, but the the family reunion I'm going to most enjoy is still to come on the other side. <laughs> Can't wait. When Abraham died, the Old Testament patriarch, it was said of him, this is Genesis 25, 8, he was gathered to his people. I want to be gathered to my people who are in Christ too. How about you? Will you be there when the role is called to be on there? When my dad died back in 07, my mom survived him for seven years. I did both of their funerals. But early on, after dad's death, uh, mom really struggled. I'm just being honest. And I was pastoring in northern Kentucky, and we had lots of phone calls going back and forth. And again and again, mom would ask me, Kurt, heaven's such a big place. It's so highly populated. Will dad, will Harold know me? Will he love me the way he did on earth? And while acknowledging, Mom, I, I know Jesus said in heaven, Matthew 22, there's, there's no marriage. We're like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. But I said, don't assume too much from that statement. The Apostle Paul tells us that to depart and be with Christ is what? It, it's far better. So I said, whatever was good here on earth is going to be far better up there. So take it from me, from the Apostle Paul. Dad's going to know you and love you better up there than he did here on earth. And you will do the same with him. Remember the description of love, how it ends in 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. It never ends. It's going to be better. And by the way, we're all going to be a part of a heavenly bride up there. It'll be one big marriage supper celebration with Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom. Well, mom knows what I'm saying is true now because she's been there now for seven years. She's with dad, the rest of the family. My, my question is, is that going to be your experience? The dead in Christ rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we all be together forever with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I need to close up here uh, with a very precious illustration. I'll try not to weep here. It's about my little granddaughter, Caitlin, right down here, sitting on the front row. Hope I don't embarrass you, honey. They've got three kids. I just did, didn't I? <laughs> oh, a week ago yesterday was my birthday. And uh, it was a full ministry day. I loved serving the Lord. At the end of the day, I took Karen out to a nice restaurant in Prairie Trail. We loved the meal. It was great. You can ask us later where we went. And at the end of the, the meal, we came home, and I sat down on the couch. It was about 8 or 8.30 in the evening. And suddenly, I got a phone call, a FaceTime call from my daughter, Jen. And Caitlin was on there with her. Caitlin was teary. She was sweet. She was broken. She was humble. She was smiling, and she said, Grandpa, I just need you to know that I just trusted Christ as my personal Savior. Amen. <laughs>
It was the best birthday present I could have ever had. I let out a hoop and a shout, praise the Lord, thank you for answering our prayers. Now I know that I'll be at Caitlin and her family forever in heaven. <laughs> God was so gracious to answer that prayer and welcome to the family, Caitlin, we, we love you. But my question goes out to my younger auditors here. Maybe you're in grade school, maybe middle school, maybe high school, maybe, maybe you're a young adult, maybe you're, you're some adults and you grew up in the church, but you've never been saved and you know down deep there's no genuine reality to your faith. I'm asking you, would you make this your day of salvation? Would you make sure that your circle will be unbroken when you reach the other side? Would you this day embrace the God of your parents? Would you pray with me? And before I begin to pray, I'm just going to ask if any of you have kids sitting with you, maybe younger. And kids, if you're feeling that tug like Caitlin did last Saturday, would you just look over, catch your parents' eyes, mom and dad, keep your eyes open. Would you just with a knowing look say, I want to talk about this when we get home. I want to invite Christ into my life. Would you just look at them and dad and mom, would you take note of that? And would you take some moments at home to explain the gospel? Moms and dads, grandpas and grandmas, would you go home and would you tell your testimony to your family? And for all who are here, whatever your age, would you turn from self-trust and put your faith in Christ, believing he died for you and rose again? Would you repent and believe the gospel and be saved? Would you embrace the God of your parents? Lord, would you help these people, I ask right now, by your spirit? Would you draw them, because you're the cause, we're only the means. Would you draw them to Christ for your glory, and may they be saved forever and we'll see them on the other side. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.